Good morning and welcome. I wish we could meet together in person today, but until we're able to do that, we can thank God for this technology, which allows us to meet together in a lesser way. And to begin with, let me give you the program for the next few weeks in terms of what we have planned. Our plan is to stream once each Sunday at this same time. So uh, today, March 22nd, we'll be looking again at Jeremiah. Sunday, March 29th, uh, we'll plan to finish Jeremiah. And then we'll move into more of an Easter focus in the next few uh, slots. Sunday, April the 5th, Steve will be leading us in that. And then we'll, we will have a Good Friday uh, broadcast, 7 p.m. on Good Friday, as we normally do. And then on Easter Sunday, April the 12th, we will again, 10.45, Easter Sunday morning, and Steve will be uh, leading us in that. Some of you have asked about giving. How do you continue to do that while we're not meeting together at church? Well, there was an email circulated about that yesterday, but if you didn't receive that email, feel free to contact me for details. You could do that through the church website. And then just a word about our setup here. When it comes to the songs, you're going to hear lots of people singing. Those people are not here with me. It's your own voices, actually. We're using recordings made on previous weeks. But I do encourage you to join in with yourselves. Sing along like you are here. And treat it as a genuine time of worship. And so let's begin by remembering the reason that we sing as Christians. We sing because we belong to the all-powerful God who is always trustworthy, even in times of uncertainty, even in times like this. Psalm 20 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses. In other words, they trust in human inventions and human ability. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. We don't say those words with any arrogance at all, but as God's people, we can say those words with confidence. We trust in the one who will never fail us. So let's join in praising the Lord our God, who is King of the universe.
Let's pray. Lord God, we are glad to remember that you remain king, even in such strange times as these. We're glad in these times to have you as our rock and our salvation. We pray for those this morning who are feeling the pain of isolation today. Will you help us as a church to do what we can to alleviate that pain? Help us to grow in our love and care for one another. Help us to do that in spite of the limitations we're facing. And we pray for mothers today and for those who function as mothers. We realize many of them will not be able to be with their families today because they're in care homes and can't be visited or because they're isolated in their own home. Will you deliver them from discouragement today? On Mother's Day, give them a special sense of your care and your love. We pray for those men and women we've been referring to as frontline workers in the NHS and other services. Will you give them energy for the work they're doing? Keep them safe. We pray for those in other employment who are uncertain about their jobs. We ask you to provide for them in the months ahead. We pray for students who've had their year cut short at school or college or university. Will you help them to trust you? to trust you even in their disappointment at missing out on celebrations and trips. Help them to trust you in their concern about their predicted grades and what that's going to mean. Give them patience. And we pray for fairness all around in these situations. We pray too for our nation, for millions of people facing this uncertainty without you without hope and without God. In your mercy, will you make this time a time when people realize they are lost without you? We pray that you will give churches around the country the opportunities to share the hope that we have in Christ. We pray that churches will grow during this time rather than declining. Father, will you make this a fruitful time for your kingdom? Bring many people to find hope in Jesus Christ. And will you use this time this morning to strengthen our faith in you? Amen. Our next two songs bring us back to the firm foundation of our faith. They remind us that in our Savior Jesus Christ, we are never alone. In every situation, he is with us, and we stand strong by his power. So let's sing together. We're not alone, and then in Christ alone our hope is found.
Last time we looked at Jeremiah, we were in chapter 50, and we heard God's message there to the historical city of Babylon. God said, Babylon, you are arrogant. You believe you're above all other powers and authorities, and so you are going to fall. I know it sounds ridiculous because you seem to be all-powerful. You're the unrivaled world superpower. But God said, I promise I am the only real superpower. And I'm going to bring an alliance of nations against you, and you will fall. That was chapter 50. And as we move into chapter 51, we find God repeating that message. And we might wonder if there is anything more to be said about Babylon. After all, today, Babylon means nothing to us. It's long gone. Shouldn't we just let it be and move on? That's what we might think. But actually, the Bible tells us God's words to the ancient city of Babylon have relevance to all times and all places. Because the mindset that motivated ancient Babylon can be found in all times and all places. So we're going to pick up in Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 34, and we'll read through to the end of the chapter, verse 64. If any of you have stolen a church Bible and you're using it at home, that's very convenient for you because I can give you the page numbers. It's page 819 in the green church Bibles and in the large print 1270. This passage opens with the people of Jerusalem speaking. Jeremiah 51, verse 34. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has devoured us. He has thrown us into confusion. He has made us an empty jar. Like a serpent, he has swallowed us and filled his stomach with our delicacies and then has spewed us out. May the violence done to our flesh be on Babylon, say the inhabitants of Zion. May our blood be on those who live in Babylon, says Jerusalem. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. See, I will defend your cause and avenge you. I will dry up her sea and make her springs dry. Babylon will be a heap of ruins, a haunt of jackals, an object of horror and scorn, a place where no one lives. Her people all roar like young lions. They growl like lion cubs. But while they are aroused, I will set out a feast for them and make them drunk so that they shout with laughter Then sleep forever and not awake, declares the Lord. I will bring them down like lambs to the slaughter, like rams and goats. How Sheshach will be captured, the boast of the whole earth seized. How desolate Babylon will be among the nations. The sea will rise over Babylon. Its roaring waves will cover her. Her towns will lie desolate a dry and desert land, a land where no one lives, through which no one travels. I will punish Baal in Babylon and make him spew out what he has swallowed. The nations will no longer stream to him and the wall of Babylon will fall. Come out of her, my people. Run for your lives. Run from the fierce anger of the Lord. Do not lose heart or be afraid when rumors are heard in the land. One rumor comes this year, another the next. Rumors of violence in the land and of ruler against ruler. For the time will surely come when I will punish the idols of Babylon. Her whole land will be disgraced and her slain will all lie fallen within her. Then heaven and earth and all that is in them will shout for joy over Babylon. For out of the north, destroyers will attack her, declares the Lord. Babylon must fall because of Israel's slain. Just as the slain in all the earth have fallen because of Babylon. You who have escaped the sword, leave and do not linger. Remember the Lord in a distant land and call to mind Jerusalem. We are disgraced, 
For we have been insulted, and shame covers our faces, because foreigners have entered the holy places of the Lord's house. But days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish her idols, and throughout her land the wounded will groan. Even if Babylon ascends to the heavens and fortifies her lofty stronghold, I will send destroyers against her, declares the Lord. The sign of a cry comes from Babylon, the sign of great destruction from the land of the Babylonians. The Lord will destroy Babylon. He will silence her noisy din. Waves of enemies will rage like great waters. The roar of their voices will resound. A destroyer will come against Babylon. Her warriors will be captured and their bows will be broken. For the Lord is a God of retribution. He will repay in full. I will make her officials and wise men drunk, her governors, officers, and warriors as well. They will sleep forever and not awake, declares the king, whose name is the Lord Almighty. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Babylon's thick wall will be leveled and her high gates set on fire. The peoples exhaust themselves for nothing. The nation's labor is only fuel for the flames. This is the message Jeremiah the prophet gave to the staff officer, Sariah, son of Neriah, the son of Maseiah, when he went to Babylon with Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fourth year of his reign. Jeremiah had written on a scroll about all the disasters that would come upon Babylon, all that had been recorded concerning Babylon. He said to Sariah, when you get to Babylon, see that you read all these words aloud. Then say, Lord, you have said you will destroy this place so that neither people nor animals will live in it. It will be desolate forever. When you finish reading this scroll, tie a stone to it and throw it into the Euphrates. Then say, so will Babylon sink to rise no more. Because of the disaster I will bring on her, and her people will fall. The words of Jeremiah end here. This is God's word. Charles Dickens wrote a book called A Tale of Two Cities. The cities that he had in mind were London and Paris. But the title of Dickens' book could be applied to the Bible. Because the Bible is a tale of two cities. Not the cities of London and Paris, but the city of God and the city of man. You may not have thought of the Bible that way before, so let me try and show you. First, think of what a city is. It's not just a group of people in one place. A city has its own government to some degree. That was particularly true in the ancient world. But even today, cities have their own government and their own rules. The mayor of London, for example, is a powerful position. Working with the city government, he has a lot of power over the way the city is run. And if we take that understanding of a city and look at the Bible, what we find at the very beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis What we find in Genesis chapter 2 is what we could call the city of God. The Garden of Eden was a place where God set the rules, and his rules were not harsh. Not at all. There were basically only two rules. God said to the man and woman, number one, take care of the garden for me, and number two, enjoy the garden. On the second rule, God's actual words were, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The whole garden is there to be enjoyed. Just don't eat from that one tree. And God explained why that tree was forbidden. It would bring death into their experience. So his command not to eat from the tree was a good and wise command. It was a loving command. Those were the rules in the city of God. Take care of the garden 
and enjoy the garden, except for that one tree, because that one tree will kill you. So we could say the city of God is where men and women live willingly under God's good and wise authority. In contrast to that, the city of man is where men and women try to shake off God's authority and live by their own rules. They try to put themselves in God's place. In Genesis chapter 3, the man and woman do that. They eat from the forbidden tree. And God says to them, that's not how it works in my city. You can't stay in my city if you're determined to live like that. So the man and woman were expelled from the city of God. They were put out of Eden. And it's not long before their descendants decide to build their own city. Genesis chapter 11 tells us about the Tower of Babel. The people who built Babel had a very clear agenda. They had a mission statement for themselves. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. One writer sums up their motto as, move over God, we are coming up. We're going to put ourselves in your place. And what we find throughout the rest of the Bible is these two cities, side by side, the city of man and the city of God. The city of God is found wherever men and women seek to live under God's authority. And the city of man is found wherever men and women seek to throw off God's authority and live as if they were God. Why am I mentioning all this? I mention it because the passage we read together highlights two cities on the map that came to symbolize the city of man and the city of God. Those cities are Babylon and Jerusalem. Babylon had a long, long history. In our English Bibles, Babel and Babylon are spelt differently, but in Hebrew, they're spelt exactly the same. The city of Babel in Genesis was the forerunner of the city we've been reading about in Jeremiah. And by the time we get to the New Testament, Babylon is being used to symbolize the enemies of God and his people in all times and places. By New Testament times, the ancient city of Babylon was a distant memory, like it is for us today. But as far as the New Testament is concerned, wherever you find the mindset, move over God, we are coming up, you know you're dealing with Babylon. It's an approach to life. What about Jerusalem? Well, in the Old Testament, Jerusalem was the city of God. He chose to associate himself with that city. That's where his temple was. God said, I have put my name in Jerusalem. But of course, we've seen the historical city of Jerusalem prove to be an unholy place. Because of the people's sin, it was destroyed. And so was God's temple. But the interesting thing is, after Jerusalem is destroyed, God's faithful people begin to look forward to the day when God will build a new Jerusalem, a place that will never be destroyed because it truly will be a holy place, a place where God lives eternally with his people, and they thrive there in his presence under his good authority. Two ancient cities that symbolize two very different realities. So with that in mind, let's look again at the passage we read together. The passage begins with a description of Babylon's two feasts. And they're both horrible feasts. In verses 34 and 35, we find Babylon feasting on God's people. The people speaking right at the start here are the people of Jerusalem. They say, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has devoured us. 
He has thrown us into confusion. He has made us an empty jar. Like a serpent, he has swallowed us and filled his stomach with our delicacies and then has spewed us out. May the violence done to our flesh be on Babylon, say the inhabitants of Zion. May our blood be on those who live in Babylon, says Jerusalem. Zion is another name for Jerusalem. They're used interchangeably. And what these words refer to in the very first place is what Nebuchadnezzar did to Jerusalem in 587 BC. He trashed it. His armies flattened the city and took away its wealth. But notice how Babylon is described here. It's like a serpent devouring the people of Jerusalem. That word is referring to a huge sea monster. It's not talking about a snake that slithers through the grass. This is not a mild and sneaky enemy. It's a mad monster. And he gorges himself on God's people until he ends up eating so much he vomits them out again. They're drenched in the acid juices from his stomach. It's disgusting. And it's a picture of what the city of man does to God's people throughout history. If you read the New Testament accounts of Jesus' life, it is striking how often Jesus' life and teaching made people angry. It made them murderously angry. And ironically, it was the religious leaders who seemed to hate Jesus the most. They had the high positions in Israel. And they looked on Jesus as a challenger to their power. Jesus came with God's authority. And as religious as they were, they still wanted to be the ones in charge. And so they didn't stop until they killed Jesus. And if you read those accounts in the Gospels and then go on to read the book of Acts, you find Jesus' followers getting the same murderous reaction from the world around them. As they teach about Jesus, as they do good in the name of Jesus, those men and women are flogged, they're thrown in prison, and many of them are killed as well. That's what the city of man does to God's people. Not in every place at every time, of course. We'll see that later on. But this kind of murderous rage is always being poured out in God's people somewhere in the world. In that sense, we can say that Babylon seems to have a fair amount of success feasting on God's people. And that success is not a thing of the past. Believe it or not, more Christians died for their faith in the last century than in all the previous centuries put together. History shows the city of man can regularly be found feasting on God's people. But here in our passage, God promises he will give Babylon another feast. The city of man will find itself feasting on God's wrath. God doesn't deny the successes of the city of man. But what he promises is he will avenge his people. Here in Jeremiah 51, the most immediate way he will do that is to bring down ancient Babylon. He will turn that city into a heap of ruins. In verse 38, God compares the enemies of his people to young lions. In other words, they're powerful. They're full of life and energy. They show no signs of weakening. It seems that their best years are still ahead of them. But God says, no, here is what's ahead of them. In verse 39, while they are aroused, I will set out a feast for them and make them drunk so that they shout with laughter, then sleep forever and not awake, declares the Lord. The Babylonians loved a drinking party. 
But this one isn't going to turn out as they planned. It will turn into a never-ending nightmare. As they're congratulating themselves on their victories and their achievements, all of a sudden they'll find themselves faced with God's judgment. And they'll be like drunk men. They'll be legless, unable to respond, and swept away to eternal death. Having just been described as powerful young lions, in verse 40, those same people are now pictured very, very differently. God says, I will bring them down like lambs to the slaughter, like rams and goats. God's enemies seem to be so strong, but they will go to judgment, God says, like helpless, weak lambs to the slaughter. The lions have become lambs. And the bowls of wine have turned into a terrifying sea of wrath. Down in verse 42. The sea will rise over Babylon. Its roaring waves will cover her. Now the actual city of Babylon was nowhere near the sea. This is not a sea of water. It's a sea of wrath. And it will swallow up not just the historical city of Babylon. In the end, it will swallow up the city of man. Those in every time and place who oppose God's people and put themselves in God's place. All those who live life with the attitude, move over God, we are coming up. They will be drowned in God's wrath. And notice that includes all supernatural forces that energize the city of man. Verse 44 mentions Baal, the Babylonian god, also known as Marduk. No doubt Baal was just a lifeless idol, but behind him were demonic forces that work through the city of man. Earlier, Babylon was pictured having so much freedom, devouring God's people, that he got full enough to vomit. He gorged himself so much on them. But here God turns it around and says, these human and demonic enemies might seem like they're devouring my people, but they will have no permanent hold on my people. I'll make them cough up what they've swallowed. Those are Babylon's two feasts. The Bible never denies that in the short term, the enemies of God and his people might devour quite a lot. But the Bible insists in the long run, the enemies of God and his people will be drowned in God's wrath. And his people will be delivered. So here's the challenge for each one of us. Choose your city. In verse 45, God speaks to the Israelite exiles living in Babylon, and he says to them, Come out of her, my people. Run for your lives. Run from the fierce anger of the Lord. Having read earlier about the horrible, devouring anger of Babylon, this verse might surprise us. Why would God need to plead with people to turn their back on Babylon? Well, the reality is Babylon had a vicious side. But it also had a very, very attractive side. Historically, many of the exiles ended up living quite comfortably there. And later on, when they were given the opportunity to leave, they chose not to. Babylon wasn't always nasty. She could be very appealing and seductive when she wanted to be. So much so that by the time we get to the New Testament, Babylon is pictured as an alluring prostitute, a sexy lady. In the book of Revelation, the Apostle John is shown a vision, and in that vision he sees a woman. He describes her for us. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering 
with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with the abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. Babylon has two sides to her. We've seen one side in Jeremiah 51, Babylon the monster, the devourer of God's people. But now we we see she has an enticing side as well. She doesn't always behave like a mad sea monster. Some of the time, maybe most of the time, she's very attractive captivating even. And that's why in the next chapter of Revelation, we find the words being quoted from Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 45. Come out of her, my people. Run for your lives, because as alluring as Babylon looks at times, she's going to drown in God's wrath. And you don't want to be drowned along with her. So turn your back on her. Choose the other city. Here in our passage, look down to verse 49. Babylon must fall because of Israel's slain, just as the slain in all the earth have fallen because of Babylon. You who have escaped the sword, leave and do not linger. Remember the Lord in a distant land. And call to mind Jerusalem. I said earlier we're talking about two cities. But there is a twist to this. The twist is we all live in the city of Babylon. We live in this world that's characterized by opposition to God and hatred of his authority. The attitude of this world is move over God, we are coming up. Babylon is all around us. It's the environment you and I are born into. And we can participate in it without even thinking of it. But the other city, Jerusalem, is not within reach right now. It's a future city. And the attitude of that city is foreign to the city we live in today. Here in our passage, the people in Babylon are urged to remember the Lord in a distant land and call to mind Jerusalem. All these people could do was to call it to mind. They're in exile. They're hundreds of miles from Jerusalem. And in any case, Jerusalem is a heap of rubble at this stage. Even if they could get on a camel and leave Babylon, they couldn't just go to that other city. Before they could arrive there, Jerusalem would have to be rebuilt. Even for these people, this is a call to choose what God will bring about in the future. It's a call to choose something they can't see and they can't visit right now. And according to the New Testament, The new Jerusalem is a place we can't see or visit right now. It's not a city that we can build. In the book of Hebrews, it's called the city whose builder and architect is God. The new Jerusalem is a city that God makes for us. It's a city we can't get on a bus and go to. It's promised to all those who trust in Jesus but we have to wait for it. So it's a city we can only look forward to in faith. If we choose it as our city, we have to go on living in Babylon with our hope set on that other city we cannot see right now. Here's how the book of Revelation describes the arrival of that city. At the end of time, John says, 
I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Surely that is worth waiting for. But waiting for it means we have to turn our backs on Babylon now. And that does not mean we should opt out of society and opt out of daily life. At the moment, we're all getting a strange taste of what it's like to be cut off from society. Turning our back on Babylon does not mean we're supposed to live like this all of the time. Not leaving the house, not being involved with people. Turning our back on Babylon does not mean we live without toilet roll and don't go to work. Hopefully before long we'll be able to do normal things again. And we should do them. Turning our back on Babylon is not about abandoning everyday life. It means refusing to go along with this world's God-defying approach to everyday life. Choosing Jerusalem means we give God his rightful place in every part of our lives. We choose to live under his authority because we believe he is wise and good and loving. We believe as well as being so, so worthy of our obedience, he also has our very best interests at heart. So we choose to live now as citizens of that city that is still to come. As long as we're on this planet, we cannot avoid Babylon. It's not a place we can get away from by living in a cave somewhere. Babylon can find us even there. No, we turn our backs on Babylon by turning our backs on the mindset that puts human wisdom and power in God's place. And we do that, we turn our backs on Babylon because the Jerusalem that's to come is an eternal city. Its joys and pleasures never, ever end. Whereas the joys and pleasures of Babylon are very, very short-lived. Back in our passage, look down to verse 52. Days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish her idols. And throughout her land, the wounded will groan. Even if Babylon ascends to the heavens and fortifies her lofty stronghold, I will send destroyers against her, declares the Lord. God is comparing ancient Babylon here to the city of Babel back in Genesis. We've seen how they share the same motto, move over God, we're coming up. And there will be many times when that attitude seems to bring success. Many civilizations, many societies seem to get along just great without God. But only for a while. No matter how high they reach, sooner or later, everything they build will be destroyed. Look down to verse 58, where God says, Babylon's thick wall will be leveled. And her high gates set on fire. The peoples exhaust themselves for nothing. The nation's labor is only fuel for the flames. Ancient Babylon was renowned for its massively high, massively thick walls. Building those walls was a remarkable achievement. 
But God says in the end, it will prove to be for nothing. All that labor and all that exertion, in the end, it was only fuel for the flames. It's the same with all that's done in defiance of God. Every, every businessman or every businesswoman who says, I'm going to build a little empire for myself. Every celebrity who says, I'm going to make a name for myself. In the end, they are exhausting themselves for nothing. Enoch Powell said, every political career ends in failure. We could say the same thing about any career, any life that's lived with the aim of glorifying and raising up ourselves. In the end, a life that's lived with that goal is just fuel for the flames. All of its achievements all of its successes will be destroyed just as surely as ancient Babylon was. So God says to each one of us, choose your city. Are you going to live for what you can get now? The pathetic little towers you can build for yourself? The little bit of applause you can squeeze out of this world? Are you going to live for that or are you going to turn your back on that and live for the city I have built for you? The future city where you will have solid joys and lasting treasure. Where you'll have eternal pleasures that will never fade good things that can never be stolen from you, that can never rust away or burn up. It's not easy to choose that future city. It's not easy for any of us because Babylon is all around us every day. But the other city is the only city that will stand. The last action of Jeremiah that's recorded in this book was to send his friend Sariah to Babylon, carrying a scroll with this message to Babylon. Sariah's instructions were to read the scroll aloud, then he was to tie a stone to it and throw it into the Euphrates, the river that ran through Babylon. Everyone could watch the scroll sink just as Babylon would sink. And it did. We even know the exact date. The 12th of October, 539 BC, historians tell us. Daniel chapter 5 records how Belshazzar, one of King Nebuchadnezzar's successors, Belshazzar was having a feast, and it was a drinking party for him and thousands of his friends. Belshazzar had gold and silver goblets brought out that had been stolen from the city of Jerusalem and they did their drinking from those because they were powerful and successful people. They believed they were more powerful than the pathetic God of Israel who couldn't even protect his own city, Jerusalem. But before that drinking party was over, the Medes and the Persians arrived. And when they did arrive, Belshazzar was legless with wine and with fear. He was killed that night. And the Babylonian Empire sank like a stone, just as God promised it would. And that's also how the end of the Bible describes the final defeat of God's enemies. It's not going to be a prolonged battle. God says it will be over in a moment. At the end of history, the city of man will sink like a stone. None of us like 
the situation we're living in right now. None of us like this uncertainty and upheaval because of coronavirus. But maybe there is one blessing in all of this. Maybe this shows us just how fragile human power really is. Just how easily we can all be put at a loss. How easily the things that we count on can come to a halt within days. Our big plans are put on hold. Maybe this is a gracious opportunity God has given us to see who is really in control and to see which city is going to last. If we have chosen the city of God, we're still not going to enjoy this situation we're in. But we don't have to panic because we're living for an eternal city whose builder and architect is God. We're living for the only thing we can never lose. So this week, let's encourage one another with this truth. Call someone. Help each other to keep these things in mind. And let's join together now where we are, wherever we are. Let's join together in the last song. It's a song that's very honest about our own weaknesses and failures. But it's a song that reminds us if we are trusting in Jesus, we belong to the eternal city. Zion city. Jerusalem. We're not there yet. But because of Jesus, we already have the keys. He earned a place for us there through his death and resurrection. So let's sing together, Christ is mine forevermore.
May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.